0: Good evening to you all, and to everyone online. A couple of weeks ago, someone was asking me about my practice and what I was now finding most compelling in it. Of course, over the years, this has changed. You know, at different times, different aspects of the teachings. Uh, would seem very compelling. But in the last couple of years, there was one thing in particular that has really um, grabbed my interest a lot. And that is the challenge of practicing for liberation in the context of a lay life. It's challenging because practicing for liberation is like swimming upstream because it goes against so much of our conventional understanding of reality and of the way things are. And what makes it a compelling question for me is that so much of the Buddha's teachings um, is directed to nuns and monks, monastics, who are living a life of much greater renunciation than most of us do, just as lay people. But for many of us who are living the household life, we still have the aspiration, the highest aspiration for freedom, for awakening, for enlightenment. So how can we... Approaches. How how can we work with this challenge? In the Buddhist time and up until now, uh, there have been many householders who have realized and attained different stages of awakening. You know, and who are firmly and deeply on the path. So the question really is how can we find the middle way between monastic renunciation, on the one hand, and being ensnared in the realm of worldly pleasures? Is there a middle way that can actually guide us on the path of awakening, of liberation, you know, of realizing our highest aspirations Now, we can't avoid sense experiences, even if we wanted to, because obviously, inhabiting a body, different sense experiences are just part of our lived reality. But how we relate to them is completely up to us. We're going to have sights and sounds and all the different sense objects coming, with their range of pleasant and unpleasant, but how we relate to their coming, that really is a result of basically our training in mindfulness. Can we relate to them in a way that leads to awakening rather than just ensnares us further in this entanglement of sense delights? So, the Buddha gave one teaching that encapsulates this challenge. It's a very brief teaching, but it really includes a lot in it. He spoke of the gratification, the dangers or the downside, and the escape or release from entanglement in the various pleasures of the senses. Right? So he spoke of the gratification, the downsides, and the release. We're all aware of the gratification that they provide. You know, With each of us perhaps partial to some and indifferent to others, but we know just from <coughs> our daily lives kind of the happiness and the joy and the gratification when we have pleasant-sense experiences. Because they do bring us a kind of happiness. And they do bring a certain quality of delight in our lives. And they may be beautiful sights that we love. Maybe we're very visual. Or we love beautiful music and beautiful sounds. Or delicious tastes, or... You know, wonderful aromas or exquisitely pleasurable bodily sensations. So these are all the experiences, common, ordinary experiences in our lives that we experience and which we feel a certain happiness and gratification in the experience of them. So the Buddha acknowledged this. He acknowledged that the gratification is there. But that's where most of us stop. The Buddha went on to describe what he called the dangers or the downsides of relying on these sense pleasures for our happiness. Yet if you think about it, to some extent or perhaps to a large extent, that's what we're doing in our lives in in our pursuit of happiness, very often we frame it in terms of just accumulating as many pleasurable experiences as possible, you know, as being the source of our happiness. But the Buddha pointed out that because of their fleeting nature, they are inherently unreliable as a source of lasting fulfillment. He didn't deny that they bring us pleasure in the moment. But if we're looking for a sense of fulfillment or completion in our lives, they are not going to provide it precisely because they're very changeable. They're very impermanent. And we know this. How many sense pleasures have you already enjoyed in your life? Countless. Countless and yet you're here <laughs> so so on some level you know we already know that as delightful as they may be they don't provide the essence of fulfillment or the essence of the deepest, highest kind of happiness. Another downside, and perhaps the word danger is more appropriate for this aspect, is that in our experience of the pleasures of the world, when we experience them unmindfully, They are simply strengthening the tendency of the mind towards greed, towards wanting more. And so it just uh, lands us in the cycle of always wanting more, then not being satisfied, go for more, not being satisfied. And so the tendency in the mind, the wanting mind or the greedy mind, is getting strengthened, when we don't bring mindfulness to these experiences. What's really surprising is that besides strengthening the habit of wanting, we still buy into it even when the consequences are unpleasant. So I'll give you a few examples of that, and it's quite remarkable that we keep going after things in anticipation of them bringing happiness, and they actually bring us some kind of suffering, but we still want them. So a few few examples that came to mind, but they were probably endless. But what first came to mind was just the tendency of overeating, You know, enticed by the initial desire and anticipated pleasure, and we often find it difficult to simply let the desire pass, even when we know that overeating doesn't feel good. (laughs) Quite, quite quickly, it doesn't feel good. Uh, So it makes (laughs) it, it quite surprising that. I think rarely do we simply let the desire come and go or, if we do start, to know when to stop. And I just had a recent experience of this uh, just in, in Barry, on the other side of town. There's a, uh, something like a farm store. It's, it's quite a nice place. And they sell their own ice cream. And the ice cream's really good. their child-size portion, (laughs) that's the smallest that they serve, is already way too much. And it's somewhat typical of our culture, I think. It's just the culture of excess in this way. And we know, I know, if I finish even that child-size portion, It's not going to feel good afterwards. But how many of us can stop after six or seven spoonfuls of ice cream? It's hard because that desire, the wanting for the next hit, that next hit of pleasure, that next hit of sweetness is so strong. It's so compelling. Something that uh, Bart referred to uh, last night, which I think we're all subject to and we all have experience with. And that is indulging in the dubious pleasure of surfing the internet (laughs) where the algorithms know exactly what will seduce us providing us with the next link to whatever it is that we're wanting to look at. Do we ever stop with just clicking on one link? No, and then another, and then another. And before we know it, a half an hour has gone by, you know, and just lost in this dream world, you know, of of the Internet. This never-ending desire for completion, which never comes. So it just is very striking to me that even though we know it, we've all experienced that and yet it's very hard not to fall into that trap. So I say this just to point out of why this path to awakening, to liberation, to freedom is like swimming upstream. Right? There's strong conditioning in our minds that just wants to go after the next hit of momentary pleasure even when we know the consequences are unpleasant that's that's to me quite striking So the Buddha, uh, in one discourse, he expressed it with a wonderful phrase. He said, forms, sounds, tastes, odors, bodily sensations, and all mental objects. This is the terrible bait of the world. I love that phrase the terrible bait of the world. I think of fish swimming and then biting on the bait. So all of these different sense inputs are coming, and we're like these fish. that just keep biting on that and biting on that and biting on that. This is the terrible bait of the world with which the world is infatuated. But when one has transcended this, the mindful disciple of the Buddha shines radiantly like the sun, having transcended Mara's realm. Mara is the embodiment of ignorance or delusion. So the Buddha is pointing to a possible release from being entangled in the world of these sense objects, sense pleasures. And again, I want to reiterate, it doesn't mean that we don't experience them, because we will. As an embodied human being, these sense experiences are going to come. But our challenge, and the swimming upstream, is can we really see them for what they are, see them accurately, not be seduced, And then even enjoy them in the moment, but without the clinging, without the grasping, without the wanting. So this is not easy. And that's why (coughs) we're all here, and why it really takes practice and a cultivation of certain qualities of mind that allow for this freedom. There's another danger in our unmindful experience of sense-experience, sense-pleasures. And that is, these desires can often lead to very unskillful actions, which cause suffering for ourselves and suffering to others. You know, when you think of crimes of passion, just people doing things driven by strong desire, strong lustful desire, or of addiction, of just basic greed for more. When you think how much of the inequality in the world comes from strong greed. I mean, our mind states have consequences, not only for ourselves, (coughs) they have consequences for the whole world. And we see it, we see it being played out. So there's the acknowledged gratification. So we see that and acknowledge that. There's also the dangers of this cycle of endless wanting. And then the Buddha talked about the escape or the release from these deeply ingrained patterns. So I want to talk a little bit about the release and how to accomplish that to realize that for ourselves. So first, and this is something we've already talked about a little bit, is understanding the importance of training in the precepts. In Pali, that's ethical behavior. It's called sila. Because these are like the guide rails in our life's journey. You know, even as we're living householders enjoying the many pleasant experiences that come, and they do come, and we enjoy them, but the precepts keep our activities within bounds, you know, so that if we are really committed to following and even deepening our understanding of what the precepts really mean and how they can be applied... They act as a kind of mindfulness spell for us when we're about to do something that may be unwholesome or unskillful. And so they are a great protection. Just to mention a few, which, again, we've talked about just a little bit, but just to highlight the importance of this. You know, we take the precept of not killing. Every being no matter how small wants to go on living so can we relate to that you know and refrain from killing whenever possible and it usually is possible but you know people do bring up examples rightfully i think okay so what about you know, killing malaria mosquitoes or so sometimes we have to weigh weigh the consequence and weigh the options. But generally in our lives we're not faced with such subtle choices. You know, and where killing is really unnecessary. But it could be instinctive. You know the mosquito lands on your arm? <laughs> Instead of when I was in India and practicing in the summer months we would go up to the mountains and rented these quite funky houses and the first time I went up there in in this rather funky house there were these huge spiders on the ceiling of my bedroom (laughs) not quite but (laughs) big (laughs) but I and I did not like the fact that they were there. But I was committed to following the precept. And it was quite amazing. So, okay, I just surrendered. And it was actually fine. They lived up on the ceiling, and I was (laughs) down on the floor. (laughs) And we existed quite happily together. But the instinct, you know, and it's again, especially maybe in... This country or in other Western countries or wherever, you know, you take out the spray of raid or something, something you don't like, kill it. So the precept just is a guard for us, you know, to refrain from these unwholesome actions. And another huge arena, which we'll probably talk about more toward the end, is just the seal of right speech. This is a huge area of our lives, how often do we pay attention before we speak to what we're going to say? Probably not so much. At least I notice it's very easy for the words just to come tumbling out. And mostly they're probably harmless, but sometimes they're not. <laughs> you know? There's an acronym <clears throat> which is a very helpful reminder in this regard... I love this. The acronym is WAIT. It stands for why am I talking? (laughs) I love it because sometimes there's no good reason. (laughs) Okay. So Sila also serves as was mentioned, it frees our mind from remorse really allows our mind to settle and it is the gift of fearlessness to everyone else because if we're committed to Sila basically that's a statement that no one need fear us we're not going to harm anyone with our actions that's a powerful gift to be giving to everyone we meet in our lives So when you consider, you know, we take the precepts at the beginning of the retreat, and it's much more than a formality. You know, it really is the bedrock of the whole path. And it allows us to settle more deeply into concentration when our mind is not agitated in thinking about you know, unskillful, or unwholesome things we've done, the mind can settle much more easily. And the pleasure of concentration <coughs> turns out to be much more pleasurable than the happiness of sense pleasures. So we may think we're giving up You know, some sort of delight. But actually, as our mind gets concentrated, we experience a kind of happiness that is much more fulfilling and more complete. And it's still not enlightenment. It's not awakening. But it's a much more wholesome and deeply satisfying experience than the things we usually look for to make us happy. So it helps us in concentration. Sometimes when we speak about enlightenment or liberation or freedom, we can get so enthusiastic about the possibility that we just want those teachings. And we really ignore the foundation of sila. And my first teacher, Manindraji, he used this example. He said, practicing meditation without a foundation of sila is like trying to row a boat across a river without untying it from the dock. You can put an enormous amount of effort into it, but it's not going to be successful unless we have established this foundation you know, of sila and non-harming. Uh, so I just wanted to give some particular emphasis to it and would encourage you to actually explore in your own lives how your understanding of each of the precepts can be refined. You know, it, it's its own practice. And really just to look, okay... <clears throat> What does not killing mean, you know, in the different circumstances of my life? What does not stealing take what isn't given, you know, with sexual misconduct, of, of all the basic five precepts, right, speech, uh, to explore them. Okay, so with Sila as the foundation, <clears throat> then we can develop <coughs> Excuse me, different meditative techniques and skills, that free the mind both in the moment, but also lead onward to Nibbana. Nibbana is the Pali word, Nirvana is Sanskrit, which is the highest freedom, the highest peace. So we start, as I mentioned the first morning, in terms of the meditation development, we start with calming the mind and collecting the attention through some form or other of concentration. Now, concentration has the power to suppress the hindrances, but it's not suppression in a bad way. It's it's not an unskillful suppression. Rather, it's simply, when the mind is concentrated, it simply makes the hindrances inoperative for that period of time and when the hindrances which going to be talked about uh, tomorrow morning and on throughout the retreat when these hindrances in the mind are in abeyance that's when makes possible an investigation into the nature a profound investigation into the nature of our experience because if the mind is just continually scattered you know and lost in thought and restless, and it 's impossible to see clearly, so we need a basic level of concentration. It does not require some super yogi amount of concentration where you're flying through the air and walking through walls, which can be done not by me but <laughs> uh, We don't need need those fantastic levels of what's called samadhi. But we need enough just to have the mind be somewhat collected, somewhat calm, somewhat steady. So a lot of what we do in the beginning of a retreat is just work to establish kind of that baseline of concentration. So as this develops, then we have a deeper and more immediate experience of impermanence. And the Buddha used one phrase in the text to describe impermanence, which is a very unusual, not, not a common English phrase. And that's why <laughs> it really uh, caught my attention when I first read it. So he said, things are always changing becoming otherwise. And I love that phrase, becoming otherwise. Everything, every moment is always becoming otherwise, which is just another way of saying that they're continually changing. But I like that phrase because, at least for me, it suggests the inherent instability of experience. You know, we think we've landed someplace, but it's always becoming otherwise. Generally, we're not paying attention to this, (coughs) even though it's happening all the time. This is the nature of how things are unfolding. But usually we're lost in our mental proliferation and our stories and our dramas and everything we're all very familiar with. And we're simply overlooking, we're not paying attention to the fact that things are continually becoming otherwise. But this is what we see (coughs) very clearly (coughs) as the mind becomes somewhat more concentrated. This truth of change can be seen at every level of magnitude. It's such a universal characteristic of all phenomena. You can think of the birth and death of galaxies, of stars. You know, the sun in another four and a half billion years is going to either collapse or explode, depending on its size. The rise and fall of civilizations, the change of climate and of weather, and the momentary change of our lived experience. So at whatever level we look, this change, this becoming otherwise, is continually happening. So how can we... (coughs) Excuse me. How can we tune into this in a very immediate and personal way from wherever we are in the practice, even from the very beginning of our practice, there is a very simple exercise to do which will give us this immediate experience of how this is happening. So I would suggest sometimes when you're outside, it could be done any place, but I found it most helpful when I'm outside and just either doing walking meditation or going for a walk, and holding a very simple question in my mind for maybe five minutes. You know, so it doesn't have to be a long extended time, although it could be. And the very simple question to hold in the mind is, moment to moment, what is being known? That's all. What is being known? So when I do this, And I'm going for a walk. What is being known? Oh, a sight. The feeling of the air on my face. Touching my foot on the ground. A thought. A sound. Another sight. (laughs) So, so quickly, if we're paying attention carefully to what each moment's experience, what is being known, it will reveal to you immediately how quickly our experience is changing. Just moment after moment, it's one thing and another thing and another thing and another thing. And so we could see in some way that our meditation practice is, in part, a refinement of the perception of change. You know, because, of course, we could go up to anybody on the street and ask them do things change, and everybody will say yes. But we don't live that understanding <laughs> because if we really deeply fully understand it we would not be holding on to anything because <laughs> we realize it's continually changing so we do know it on some level but in the meditation practice it's it's immersing ourselves in this perception of change so we're right there in the momentary experience of it And this question that I just suggested is a beginning way of just tuning into that, to seeing the rapidity of this change. Now, this direct experience of change, rapidly changing nature of all our experience, leads to an understanding of what in the Pali language, and that's kind of the language the the Buddhist texts are in, and it's very closely related to Sanskrit. It leads to an understanding of what in Pali is called dukkha. And this is a very important word in the teachings. And for those of you who are new to the practice, the most basic formulation of the Buddhist teachings are called the Four Noble Truths, and they all revolve around this word dukkha. The first noble truth is the truth of Dukkha. Second is the cause of Dukkha. The third is the end of Dukkha. And the fourth is the path leading to the end of Dukkha. So what does Dukkha mean? It's often translated as suffering. And that's relatively easy for us to understand. But it has a broader meaning than that. Because, as the Buddha said, all conditioned things are dukkha. So when we're having pleasant experiences, we don't experience them as suffering, particularly, but they're still dukkha. Why? Because in its expanded meaning, we understand dukkha to mean the inherently unsatisfying nature of experience And it's inherently unsatisfying because it's continually changing. So this is really important (coughs) to understand. Through the development of Sila, we laid the foundation. From Sila it enables us to develop just a modicum of concentration. As the mind stabilizes a little bit, it allows us to see the momentary flow, the momentary change of every aspect of our experience. The more deeply we're immersed in that, the more deeply do we understand in our bones that these changing phenomena will never result in a lasting sense of fulfillment or completion. So all of the deepest insights of the practice just unfold uh, in in a very natural way. Okay, so most people can easily understand, at least on some level. It may be a superficial level at first, but the idea is not hard to understand. The truth of impermanence, people can relate to that on some level. And even dukkha, the the suffering is obvious that comes in life, the painful experiences, but also with a little thoughtfulness, We can appreciate the fact that changing phenomena (coughs) will not bring elastic satisfaction. But the most challenging aspect of the Buddhist teaching is not particularly impermanence or dukkha. It's the understanding of not-self, of selflessness. Because it really seems (coughs) counterintuitive. Our whole lives have revolved around the sense of self and of I am. And here the Buddha comes and say, says, that's just a mistaken understanding. That, that's a mistaken view. So he summed up, the Buddha summed up this understanding in one phrase that is found very frequently in the discourses. and It, it really encapsulates... Um, the non-self way of relating to all experience. So we said things should be seen with perfect wisdom. Everything, all phenomena, should be seen with perfect wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. So that's the understanding that we have to bring to the unfolding experience of our lives, whatever it is, a thought, a sensation, a moment of hearing, whatever it is. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. So that, that encapsulates the meaning of not-self. But of course, the big challenge is how do we actually experience that? Because it's not as obvious (coughs) as the truth of impermanence or the truth of dukkha. And so when I open the talk in terms of what it is that's most intriguing to me these days, It's really to see, is there a way in our practice as lay people, as we all are, living the household life, engaged with the world, are there ways to tap in to the experience of selflessness, of not self, in the midst of our lives, whether on retreat or in our daily lives, in a way that really gives us an immediate sense, an immediate experience, even if it's not yet complete, of this is what the Buddha meant by non-self, or by selflessness. And as I've been engaged with this question, which is of interest to me, Okay, how can, how can we actually do it in, in the midst of our busy lives? Just based on my, <clears throat> on my own interest and in exploration, there are a lot of ways to do it. And I want to share some of them with you because they've been very impactful for me in my own practice. So I think on the way in, uh, handed out this little paper, because (laughs) for those of you who are online, um, the handout is actually also posted in the Learning Center on the IMS Online website, but I'll, I'll read it now. So one arena of practice which we just often overlook is mindfulness in daily activities. We give so much emphasis to sitting and some emphasis to walking, but not quite as much as sitting. And our daily activities run a distant third. This is a huge mistake. And it deprives us of an arena of practice that we can bring right into our daily lives. You don't have to be on retreat in order to do it, although if you practice it here, then it will be easier to do when you're home. So I just, you've all seen it and probably read it, but I'd like to read it uh, <clears throat> so it goes in even more. First it says a e, bhikkhu. Now bhikkhu is the Pali word generally for a monk and bhikkhuni for a nun, but bhikkhu bodhi, the great translator, he said that bhikkhu in its more general meaning refers to anybody walking on the path. So in that sense, in that particular sense, we're all bhikkhus. We're not monastics, but we're walking on the path. So a bhikkhu is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, when looking ahead and looking around, when bending an arm or straightening it, when eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, when defecating and urinating, when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep and waking up, when talking and keeping silent, one acts with full awareness. So the reason I (coughs) printed them out for you to take is I'd like you to paste it up on the door of your room. So every time you go out of your room, you take a look at it. Or maybe someplace in your room. Just to remind you that each of these ordinary activities of our lives, the things we do every day, a bhikkhu acts with full awareness. So just as an example of... (laughs) One of our teachers, Saida Upandita, was a Burmese monk, a very, very fierce, demanding teacher. And he first came in 1984, a three-month course, and we were all very rigorous retreat. <clears throat> so my colleague, Sharon Salzberg, uh, <clears throat> she was the queen of slow-moving. <laughs> she just... It would take her an hour to cross the dining room. But it was interesting. So when she would go for, in for an interview with with Dao, she'd go in and you know, do the bows, and then he'd ask her, what did you notice when you combed your hair? Because she hadn't paid any attention to that. So she didn't have an answer. And that was it. That was the end of the interview. <laughs> <coughs> the next time she goes in, what did you notice when you were brushing your teeth? Nothing. I didn't notice anything. <laughs> so he kept on like that until she was actually fulfilling this teaching. So can we do that? Can we pay a t- careful attention? Okay. So, so you may already know the answer to this, but it was only until a few years ago that I discovered the answer for myself. What's the predominant experience you have when brushing your teeth? Okay, you don't need to answer now, but just think of what it might be and then pay attention and see if it's accurate. Because I was surprised. It wasn't what I thought it was. So that's... I'm not going to say any more. <clears throat> uh, you have to see for yourself. <clears throat> and maybe it'll be different for you. But this, for me it was surprising. <laughs> There's one common feeling. <clears throat> There's one common feeling which is like a mindfulness bell that you are not being mindful. In your daily activities. And so, if you keep an eye out for this feeling, it will be a tremendous help with just stopping for a moment, settling in, and re engaging with being aware. And that is the feeling of rushing, common feeling. When we're rushing, we're ahead of ourselves. We're energetically topping forward. It's as if our mind is already where we're going, or what we think we have to be doing, and we're not settled back in our bodies. We are not being mindful. But it's such an apparent feeling. If, if you set the intention, pay, pay attention to when you're feeling you're rushing, just stop for a moment. Recollect yourself. And then start moving at whatever speed is appropriate. Because rushing has nothing to do with speed. You can be walking slowly and be rushing. And you can be walking quickly and not rushing. You will be amazed, even here on retreat, where there's all the support and suggestions for you just to be mindful of what you're doing, of how often you will find yourself rushing through the day. And it's actually very noticeable. So I'll just give you an example of how noticeable it is. The bell rings after breakfast for the 8.45 sitting. Notice how you and others are coming into the hall. like being pulled in there, not everyone of course but not uncommonly (laughs) it's like we're rushing to get to our seats so we can begin meditating (laughs) why not meditate with each step (laughs) it makes a huge difference and you will feel so much more um, fulfilled really It's such a more easeful and relaxed way of moving when we're settled back into our bodies and really mindful of each step or each movement. There's a line from a short story by James Joyce. I think it's from the Dubliners. And the line is, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. we spend a good part of the day living a short distance from our bodies. So pay attention. And it will be of tremendous help in your practice and also in living in a much more uh, satisfying way. Okay, there are a couple more exercises that we can do to actually touch into kind of the experience of non-self, of selflessness in the midst of daily activities. And in that, I'm including also the walking. Because I've learned a lot in the walking of how to explore this teaching. In Pali, the word for selflessness is or not self is anatta, non-self it's possible at any stage in the practice to really get some glimpses of what the Buddha is talking about. So one of the easiest places to see how the sense of self is being conditioned is by paying attention to how often we're lost in thoughts of past and future. Because I think you'll notice that almost, not all of them, but most of the thoughts of past and future, guess who's the star of the show? Right? We are the subject of most of those thoughts. But they're, they're completely normal thoughts. These—you know We all have these thoughts of what we we're doing in the past, what we hope to be doing in the future. So totally common and natural. And just as thoughts, conventionally speaking, they're fine, but we're missing the fact that unless we really understand them as being just thoughts, we are unconsciously strengthening this sense of being the subject, of the I in the center of it all. So it's just, to watch, it's just to watch that, you know, pay, pay attention to that. Part of this exercise, and this also was tremendously illuminating for me, was seeing, and this was especially true in the daily activities and in the walking, how often I was lost in unnoticed thoughts, brief ones, and not problematic ones, not dramatic that weren't didn't cause any agitation. Just just the usual random thoughts that go through the mind. But at one point, I was on a self retreat and I was going for a walk, and for some reason, I just started noticing how frequently that was happening. You know, I take some steps and then. And just be lost in a thought for... Sure, it could be 5 seconds or 10 seconds or 15 seconds. But they didn't really register because they weren't problematic. You know, there was no big drama or anything. It was, but as I just said, most of these thoughts had the I as a subject. So it's really illuminating for each of us to see how frequently this is happening because mostly we're not aware of it. And the more we begin paying attention to the fact that this is happening a lot, it makes us a little more wakeful in the experience, and we become a little more quickly aware that these thoughts are there and not so lost in them. Okay, there's another exercise that, Takes us even to a more profound level of understanding selflessness. And it's something that can be realized doing anything, any kind of activity at any moment. So, for example, in walking, even as we're being mindful of the movement, you know, we're walking and we're feeling the movement, we're feeling the touch. So, we're not, in this situation, we're not lost in our thoughts we're really there but very frequently there is a subtle overlay and it can be really subtle subtle overlay of some image or idea of foot or leg or body as we're walking You know, we're feeling the sensation so it's not that we're disconnected from that but it's like I don't know, a translucent uh, image that gets overlaid on it. So it's a concept of foot or leg or body. Now the problem with not seeing that, and it takes, it's not easy to see, you, you really have to have an intention you know, to, to explore this but it's such an easy step to go from foot or leg or body to my foot and my leg and my body. And this, this just happens automatically, and this is how we think of foot and leg and body, don't you? <laughs> yeah, it's my foot and my leg and my body, not realizing, And in a conventional way, of course, it's totally okay, but for the purpose of awakening and for the purpose of liberation that is imprisoning us in a world of concept and the world of self. You know, I, me, mine. So the Buddha addressed this tendency. This talk may go over a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I know you'll be fine my colleagues may give me a hard time when <laughs> uh, So the Buddha addressed this in a discourse to his son Rahula and there's a very kind of interesting story so the Buddha was going for alms round into the village and his son Rahula was at that time a novice monk was walking behind him and Rahula, you know, looking ahead to the Buddha, he had, and the Buddha was said to you know, embody physical perfection, the you know, great, great beauty of form. And Rahula was reflecting, oh, yeah, I'm the son of the Buddha, and I, you know, somewhat similar. So he's kind of having a little pride. Needless to say, the Buddha knew what was going on in his mind, <laughs> and he turned around, <laughs> Rahula... <laughs> And he gave him a teaching to counteract that tendency. And the teaching he gave, which I'll go into a little bit of detail because it's what we can apply for ourselves. uh, The teaching was on meditating on the elements and I'm going to describe that in a little detail. But it's easy to skip over these teachings because the language and framework that the Buddha used can seem a bit theoretical and even archaic because it's not the language we use. You know, It was common at the time. He described the elements in terms of earth, air, fire, and water you know, as being the four primary elements. And to us, this may seem overly simplistic, you know, given our understanding of chemistry and physics, and so when we hear of the elements earth, air, fire, water, we might tend to dismiss it as not being so relevant to us. But really, those terms are simply a designation for the actual sensations that we're feeling. So it's a whole different use of the term element than the periodic what is it called the periodic table, you know, in chemistry of the different elements. It wouldn't help us so much to say be mindful of carbon as you walk. <laughs> or be mindful of hydrogen. That wouldn't be much help to us but if we understand what the Buddha meant by earth, air, fire, water. So earth is just the experience of hardness, of softness. You know, and air is movement and vibration, pressure. Heat is, you know, warmth and coolness. Water is fluidity, cohesion. So when we understand what these terms refer to, they provide us a very direct connection to what we're actually feeling free of concepts. So when we're experiencing the body in terms of the elements, then we're not getting caught in the overlay of foot or leg or body. So very simple exercise. And it has the potential to be quite profound even though it's incredibly simple. So... you. In your next walking meditation, or even just walking from one place to another, the two elements that are predominant in walking are the air element, movement, and the earth element, touch. So some time ago, and this is fairly recent for me, I didn't really use this earlier on in my practice, but in the last number of years, I really saw how powerful it was. I just started noting in the walking for a while Oh, air element, as I was moving. Air element, earth element, as I touched. Air element, earth element. And then maybe just air, earth, air, earth. Now the key is, not just repeating the words in your mind, you have to connect the word to, the, to what you're actually experiencing in the movement and the touch. But the value of it, the value of experiencing it in terms of these elements is it's very unlikely that the mind would go from air element to my air element (laughs) or to earth element or to my earth element. We would not tend to do that as we would with Foot, my foot, leg, my leg. So when we're directly experiencing just the basic elements of what is happening, there can be quite a vivid experience of that's all there is, and it gives us a t- it's a glimpse. It's a taste of, oh, this is what selflessness means. It's not I, me, mine. It's just the very experience that we're ha- having of walking. It's, you know, common experience. But we've dropped down onto, into the level of the selfless experience of it. Just air element, earth element, air, earth. Does it seem clear? It's, it's really simple. But it's dramatic because we're not used to dropping beneath the level of concepts. You know, we 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 live most of our lives in the world of our, our mental proliferation. Okay, one list, little piece. <laughs> the experience of the elements not only illuminates the truth of impermanence because it's always changing, but it also illuminates another aspect of anatta, selflessness, which means another meaning of it is that things are ungovernable. They're not subject to our will. Everything is happening according to certain laws. You could put the kettle on the stove and which may the water boil, may the water boil. No, you have to turn on the flame. It's going to follow its own laws. And everything is following its own laws. When we understand the laws governing phenomena and we're in harmony with them, then we can um, guide things in a certain way. But it's not because we want it to be that way. It's because we understand the laws that make certain things happen. And this is an important understanding of selflessness, of non-self, the ungovernableness because the elements are continually becoming otherwise and sometimes in ways that we don't like. You know, it was mentioned growing older and getting ill and dying and death. So this is not what we would look for, but it's not under our control. The elements of the body and of the mind and of the whole world are following their own laws. And these are some of the laws of nature, that things have the nature to grow old and sick and die. So seeing the elements in this way and appreciating this understanding that they are following their own laws again uh, highlights the selfless nature of them, right? that they're not subject to our will. This in turn leads to a deepening understanding of Dukkha because things are ungovernable. So my favorite description of Dukkha, I just came across it. somebody had written it and I thought, that captures it. So they define Dukkha as the inevitability of unwanted experiences. I love it because it is so true. We don't like to acknowledge it. It is inevitable because things are always becoming otherwise and following their own laws. So do you see how all of this ties together? And this is what's so beautiful about the Buddhist teachings. They're just so consistent. Every aspect of it, the understanding of impermanence leads to an understanding of dukkha. The understanding of both leads to an understanding of selflessness, not self. As we understand not-self, in it increases our understanding of impermanence. And to, so it's just this flowering of insight and understanding which leads to the highest peace, the highest happiness, which the Buddha talked of as the experience of Nibbana, you know, the, the freedom of the mind, the mind basically free of greed and hatred and delusion. Okay. So I just want to close with, uh, this is a teaching from a Tibetan teacher. His name is Zigar Kongchol, Rinpoche. He said, The potential for realization is universal and present for all of us. True benefit will come from your own efforts and realization. For your efforts to bring benefit, you must take your life into your own hands and examine your own mind and experience. From this point of view, nobody could be kinder to you than yourself. Nobody could have a greater effect on you or actually do more for you than yourself. The Buddha said, I have shown you the path to liberation. Now liberation depends on you. This is really true. If you don't take your life into your own hands, not even the Buddhas can make a difference. It's up to you. So that's what we're doing here together. You know, we're really embarking on this path, this path of freedom, this path of peace. So Let's just sit for a couple of minutes. Practice be dedicated to the welfare and happiness and liberation of all beings everywhere.